Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. I wanted to preach on a, a parable that Jesus told that I hope will serve as a uh, preparation, you might say, for our missions conference. Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses are entitled, The Parable of the Wedding Feast. Hear God's word. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word, our only rule of faith and practice. A couple of years ago, the White House hosted a state dinner with more than 300 guests. Those guests included cabinet members, diplomats, Hollywood celebrities. All of these people had gathered to honor the visiting prime minister of India, But what caught the attention in the days that followed was that also in attendance that night was a couple, a married couple at that time, Tariq and Michelle Tzalehi. And their attendance in the days that followed would draw national attention because they had crashed the state dinner. Uninvited, they had been able to enter the dinner, pass the Secret Service, and to act like they were invited guests when they were not. There's a lot of similarities to that with this parable told by Jesus. If you've read parables, you know that the simple definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And this parable is no exception. It involves an invitation. And the invitation is the offer of the gospel to come to the feast of God, to be forgiven of your sins. It tells us in this invitation that we are born spiritually dead, that we have committed crimes against God, of which he says the punishment or the wages of sin is death. But it's only natural to think that if we can do good things, 
those ought to be able to make us right with God, to cancel out or at least to overweigh the, the bad things that we do. And so it's natural for religious people and even non-religious people to think they can gain favor with God by trying to be good people, by living according to some set of rules that they have. And if I just try hard enough, if I just really, really try hard enough, God will see the good intentions of my heart and I will be accepted by him. Surely he will be fair in that respect. But the truth, according to the scriptures, is that there's nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves right with God and acceptable to him. But all the good deeds in the world will not do away with our problems of sin and of death. But thankfully, God, in his love and in his mercy, has sent a substitute, someone to stand in and take the punishment for us. Jesus became a man, and no other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Then he allowed himself to be arrested, to be crucified on a Roman cross, and he did that to be a substitute for others. When he was on the cross, God put my sins on him, and he punished him in my place, the full punishment, complete payment. He died on that cross. This was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a borrowed tomb. His enemies thought that was the last they would see of him. But three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave. Death could not keep its hold on him because he had broken the penalty of death. Before he ascended to heaven, he appeared to hundreds of people over a period of about 40 days. And the last thing he told his disciples, his followers, was to go into all the world and to make disciples. And to tell people how they can receive this gift of eternal life through faith in him. Have you received this gift of eternal life? That's the invitation in this parable. To do so, you must believe that Jesus was God the Son, perfect, that he died in your place, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, that when you die, when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus and punished him in your place, and now you turn from going your own way, from living for yourself, and turn toward him, living for him. When that happens, you are enabled to begin to love God. This parable begins with a certain king. The king obviously is representative of God. And this king prepares a wedding banquet for his son. He wanted all the dignitaries and all the important people in his kingdom to be present. So he sends out a wedding announcement. From what I read in those days, there would be an announcement saying, more like our save the date kind of announcements now, saying it's coming, be aware, we'll let you more, know more details later. But set this time aside. It was customary in those days for such invitations to be hand-delivered. And then guests were given a reminder near the day of the feast. And that's what this invitation is. Now he sends the servants out. He sends them out to remind those who had already been invited that the feast was now ready and it's time to come. But they refused. And their refusal was intended and it was taken as a great insult. It was dishonoring to the son, and even more so, it was dishonoring to the king. And it was dishonoring even to the servants who carried the message. But the king is not deterred. After their first 
refusal, he sends servants to repeat the invitation. It tells us in verse 4, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared. I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat cows have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Again, they refused. But this time, they don't stop just with refusal. Some leave. Some say they're preoccupied. But the others stay around. They not only beat up and abuse the messengers, they kill some of them. The king doesn't respond as well as he did after the first refusal. Now he sends out his troops, and they destroy those who had murdered the servants, and they burn their city to the ground. The gospel is like a feast. The closest I know of a real feast, Jimmy, I didn't know if you were going to be, is walking through S&S cafeteria line and seeing all that food. I guess in a real feast there would be that much food and more and you could have whatever you wanted and not have to pay a certain amount for it. The gospel is a feast. There's everything, every provision for the needs of your soul. There's a supply of everything required to relieve your spiritual hunger and pain and thirst. There's pardon for your sins. There's peace with God. There's hope for living in this life. There's glory of the promise of the world to come. All of these are set before us like a feast in rich supply. And this picture of life with God, the analogy of it being a feast, is found throughout Scripture. It's not new here in the Gospels. I love this verse in Isaiah 25, here from the Old Testament. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So God says, come, come to this feast. We have to remember that in biblical times, most of the population was half-starved most of the time. And so the idea of a feast was beyond the imagination of most people. And all this provision that's offered to us is due to the work of Christ. He offers to take us into union with himself, to restore us to the family of God as his children, to clothe us with his garments of righteousness, to give us a place in his kingdom, to present us without fault before his Father's throne on the last day, so the gospel is an offer to come and eat, to partake of this feast. If you're hungry, it's for you. It's an offer of joy to the sad. It's an offer of friends for the lonely. It's an offer of a home to the outcast. It is good news. It is nothing but good news. And note the invitations that, the, that are sent out. Unlimited The invitation to receive and attend this feast is wide and full and broad and deep. It's unlimited. The Lord Jesus tells us in the parable that the king's servants said to those who were invited, everything is ready. You don't need to do anything. Come to the wedding banquet. It's not a covered dish affair. There's no charge at the door. Come. There's nothing lacking on God's part in our salvation. No one, no one, no one sitting here will ever be able to say that, you know, it's really God's fault that I didn't come to the feast. The Father is ready to love. He's ready to accept. The Son is ready to pardon and to cleanse all our sin. The Holy Spirit is ready to sanctify and to renew. And the angels are ready to rejoice in the presence of God over sinners who repent. 
Grace is ready to assist. Heaven is ready to be your everlasting home. The only thing needed, the only thing left, is you must be ready and willing to accept it. That's it. Everything else is done. The gospel always speaks of us as sinners, as being responsible and accountable for our choices. The gospel places an open door before us all. No one is excluded from the range of its offer. Note also that the invitation here in the parable is rejected by many. The parable is similar to other parables Jesus told. There's obviously a depiction here of the refusal of the nation of Israel to Jesus the Messiah. That's quite obvious. That was the major issue during the earthly ministry of Jesus on earth. Those to whom the gospel was first preached were Jews, and those who actually came to the banquet were Gentiles, by and large. And that's what we see in John chapter 1. It says, He came to that which was his own. In other words, he came to his nation, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what's, that's, that's an obvious lesson here, but what stands out in the parable is the willful refusal of those who were invited. It's not that they could not come. It's that they would not. They become hostile. I mean, that says a lot. When the person who delivers the invitation to you, you kill, what did they do? If the invited guest felt that way toward the servants, they felt even more that way toward the king. The issue is they hated the king. And because they could not get to him, they do to his servants what they would have done to him if they'd been able to get their hands on him. Well, how did people respond to the invitation of the king in the Old Testament times, to God's servants, to the prophets that came and issued invitations for the feast? Well, if you think about in Elijah's day, one of the first main prophets, Elijah, hundreds of God's prophets are slaughtered at that time. Isaiah was one of the main prophets of God. He was cut in two. Zechariah was stoned at the altar. Messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet was killed. What about in the New Testament? Did things change? Well, the first prophet in the New Testament is John the Baptist. His head was cut off. Jesus was crucified. The first of the apostles to die was James. He had his head cut off. And then the rest of the apostles, with the exception of John, were also killed. So that is how the religious leaders in Jesus' day responded. In fact, in the next chapter here in Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus pronounces woes upon those people, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Note also, some are invited to the banquet, to the feast, and they don't openly express their hostility toward the king. They didn't hang around for the murders of the servants. They just make excuses. The parable says in verse 5, they go off. One goes to his field, another to his business. I don't have time for this feast. I've got a field to look after. I don't have time for this feast. I've got a business I'm running. And if you look at those excuses, none of them have any weight. They're not even good excuses. Some of you here own empty lots. You have a field. 
What can be pressing about a piece of dirt? It's not like if you don't tend to it today, it's going to fade away or something. Running a business is certainly not a one-day type thing. I'm going to mention Charles Spurgeon three times, and so I'm going to forewarn you in this sermon three times. This is the first one. He told about a man there in the 1800s when he lived in England who was a very wealthy man. He owned ships. He was a merchant. And he was asked, Sir, what is the state of your soul? That's still a good question, though. If you wonder how to talk to your unbelieving friends, what is the state of your soul? I guarantee you they've not gotten that question on a test in high school. And the man said, Soul? I have no time to think about my soul. I, only, I hardly have enough time to think about my business, to take care of my business. And Spurgeon wrote, but he was not too busy to die, which he did about one week later. James Boyce was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church for many years. He died of cancer, I think it's been about 15 years ago. He influenced many of us. His books still influence many of us. About this parable, he said, there are thousands, millions of people who hear the gospel and yet derive no benefit whatsoever from it. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and they do not believe so that their souls are saved. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no attraction to it. It is not as though they hate it or believe it's not true. They just, not, just do not receive it into their hearts. They like other things better. Their hobbies, their interests, their things, their money, their family, their business, the pleasures are all far more interesting to them. And it is an awful state to be in, but it is awfully common. Will you search your heart this morning, wrote Boyce, and take heed that it is not true with you? Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kills its tens of thousands. Then he wrote, Crowds will find themselves in hell, not because they hated God, but because they paid no attention to the truth, and they die because of neglect. So will you search your heart this morning? Do you fit in this parable? Are you more interested in other things? Things that by comparison to the eternal destiny of your soul, regardless of what they are, they are trivial by comparison. Look at those who accept the invitation. The second half of the parable, verses 18 to 14, tells of those who did come. So the king tells his servants, go out, gather people in from all the main roads, invite as many as you can find to come. They do so. They go out and they invite people from all over the place. And this time, those who are invited come. They come from far. They come from near. The good, the bad, the ugly. They fill the places left vacant by those who had turned it down before. People from all walks of life, they receive the invitation and they respond positively. And this is extraordinary. That the king of the universe, not just the king in the parable, but God, the king of the universe, invites all types to come to his wedding feast. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame those who are wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is not dishonored with such a motley crew. What if this crew showed up at the 
reception for your son's wedding or your daughter's wedding. And you might start making apologies to some of your... I didn't know they were coming. We sent them an invitation, but we really didn't think they would come. Oh, no, they showed up. Look. God is honored by this motley crew. Most highly honored. How is God honored? Second Spurgeon quotation. The persons who came to the wedding were more grateful than the first invited might have been if they had come. The richer people had good food every day. Those farmers could always kill a fat sheep, and those merchants could always buy a calf. Thank you for nothing, they would have said to the king if they had accepted his invitation. But these poor beggars off the street, they welcomed the feast. They were thankful for such a feast. The joy that day was much more expressed than it would have been had others come. Those ladies and gentlemen who were first invited, if they had come to the wedding, would have seated themselves in a very stiff and proper manner. But not these beggars. They make merry clatter. They are not muzzled by propriety. They are glad at the sight of every dish. The occasion became more famous than it would have otherwise been. If the feast had gone as usual, it would have been only one among many such things. But now this royal banquet was the only one of its kind, unique, unparalleled, to gather poor men off the streets, bad men and good men, to the wedding of the crown prince. This was a new thing. Everyone talked about it. There were songs written about it. They were sung in the king's honor where none honored kings before. Dear friends, when the Lord saved some of us by his grace, it was no common event. When he brought us great sinners to his feet and washed us and clothed us and fed us and made us his own, it was a wonder to be talked of forever and ever. We will never leave off praising his name throughout eternity. That which looked as though it would defame the king turned out to his honor. Now you think the, the parable's over. You know, he could have stopped at that point, and I think we've learned some strong lessons. There's obviously a looking back to the nation of Israel and how they reacted to the prophets and how they reacted to the coming of the Messiah. And then we could say, well, look, now the invitation was not just exclusive to Jews. Now it goes out to all people. And God gathering to himself people from every tribe and nation, kindred, and tongue, as Revelation says, and that includes us. Isn't that great? End of parable. But now the parable is like a searchlight is going to shine on us as individuals. And if you've not seen yourself in the parable yet, look at these next verses. About this man who comes in and he doesn't have on the right clothes. He doesn't have on the wedding garment that was provided by the king. You know, one of the good arguments for all people leading in worship is to wear a robe. One of the bad arguments is they're as hot as blazes. <laughs> and there's other... Uh, especially the black ones. I used to wear one of those regularly, and I was so tired of my clothes being soaking wet by the time after the second service. <laughs> but one of the arguments is that a good thing about a robe is it, it hides the clothes of the choir and those leading in worship. So whether you're dressed nicely or whether you're dressed poorly or whatever, or you're, whether your clothes look like they're really expensive or, whether or whatever, or whether your tie doesn't match everything else, with a robe it solves all that. Now, that is similar to what's being said here. It was customary, apparently, in those days for the host to provide the garments for those who would come to such a feast, that the king would do this. I guess the closest parallel I can think of today is if you go to a real nice restaurant and they say, sorry, you can't come in. 
coat and tie are required. There are some restaurants like that, not many in Macon, <laughs> but in some places in a good restaurant, what will they do? What's your size? We have this for you to put on. They provide that. But it's like, you need to wear this to be accepted in here. That is what's happening here. By wearing the wedding garments furnished by the king, no one stands out as to whether they are rich or poor. Every guest is there regardless of social status behind the clothes. And so now they're received. They receive the wedding garments from the king to come in. And so when the king comes in and he sees this man not wearing the wedding garments, he goes up to him in verse 11 and he says, how is it? He calls him friend, which is not a real friendly term in the Gospel of Matthew. Usually when friend is said, it's a stern like, friend, it's not a term of affection. What are you doing in here with those clothes on? And the man is speechless. The king receives no response. And the king then commands in verse 13 the servants to take this man out and throw him out into a bad place. Now, some people say, well, this guy was a believer, but that's an indication of he won't receive heavenly rewards. That's a weak argument. It's been used a lot because the language of time up, throw him in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's terminology used to describe hell in the New Testament. And that's why I think that is making reference to He is thrown out, not only of the banquet, he's thrown away from the presence of God, the king. What is the wedding garment? It is the righteousness of Christ. It's provided freely to all who repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. If we are clothed in that righteousness, we will be able to go into the presence of God to stand before him and rejoice in our salvation. But if we are clothed with anything else, we will not be able to do that. Now, there have been and there always will be people in the church, church worldwide, church in America, church at 682 Mulberry Street. There will always be people who are not true believers. Some cases they may be hypocritical. In some cases they may just be deceiving other people, saying things they don't mean and acting one way when it's not really them. In many cases, I think we are self-deceived. We're not trying to deceive deceive someone else. We don't understand. And so we come and we take our coat. Here's my garment, and I'm going to go into the banquet. And my garment, I think, matter of fact, I think it may be an improvement on what I'll be offered in there. My garment has morality. My garment has the fact, maybe it's even sewn on the inside, that I... Look there, my grandfather was a pastor. You know, and look, I went to a Christian school, and I, there's my giving statement for the last year to First Presbyterian Church, or how I've, I've been faithful to my spouse, or I, you know, at least outwardly anyway, best anyone knows, or I've done this, or I've, I've, I've got a perfect attendance star going back to when I was in Sunday school, or maybe, maybe many good things. Look at all these things I've helped. Look at what I've done in the community. Look at the number of hours I've served with this organization. No one's condemning those things, but if I think that's going on my garment, and I'm going to clothe myself in that, it will not work. It will not work at all. And so in our churches, we think I can be religious, I can live a good life, and God, surely he'll accept this. Surely he'll like this dinner jacket. This has got to work. It looks so good to me, and everybody else around seems to like it. 
But note the description when Jesus, when the king speaks to the man. The man was speechless. That's used also at other places in the Bible. In Romans it says, Every mouth will be silenced and the world will be held accountable to God. There'll be no response back. There'll be no more. But, 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 don't, you, uh, don't, you, don't you? Silence. It will be speechless. And so the thing to do is to take this off and to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I think if God looks at this, we may think it looks good. And he says, you know, do you not see how moth-infested and how putrid and the holes in that that we didn't notice? In fact, he says, it's filthy rags. Why don't you give me your coat? I've got to go change my oil and let me use it for that. That's how God sees our good works. If we think they will make us right with him. Third quotation from Charles Spurgeon. Last night, uh, after supper, it's about 7.30, and we had eaten together, Barbara and I, and, and Rebecca was home, and, and Barbara says, we're going to do a devotional. Well, in the, right behind this wall, behind me, is Stephen, who will be 15 soon. And Stephen sits in there, and he watches Barney, He's our disabled son, for those who don't know. And he gets real loud. And when we're nearby, he gets real loud, like he's being excluded from the table. And he can't talk. He just makes loud sounds. Ask the neighbors. <laughs> That's about how loud it was. It, okay, we'll do a devotion. All right, and so I get it. And, and we've got Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening. Many of y'all use that. I mean, that's it's been around forever. I've got an updated version. It takes about five minutes. There's a little reading and a devotion in the morning and one for the evening. So if you miss one, you can always kind of say, well, I'll pick it up tonight or I'll catch up tomorrow morning. So I read this and I wasn't expect. All I wanted to do was let's get through this while the noise, while my ears are ringing, get out of here. But it had a different effect on me. It was from Jonah, chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah had, uh, Spurgeon had a way of making long devotions out of real short phrases in the Bible. And so the devotion was on, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And so Spurgeon, in the three paragraphs he's talking about that, he notes that in Jonah's disobedience, in him choosing not to do it God's way, but to do it his own way, he lost all peace of mind. He lost everything that could be a comfort to him. And then there was a sentence in the last paragraph that caught my attention. And I wrote it here. It said, Spurgeon said, You will find that in the long run, it is easier to serve God than to follow your own wishes. From a practical standpoint, even Proverbs says the way of transgressors is hard. If you want to be hard on yourself, just disobey God. But if you want to make it easier on yourself from that standpoint, it's easier to serve God than to follow your own wishes. Don't put your hope in your own garments your own rules, your own goodness, your own smarts, your own accomplishments, your own sincerity, your own religion, your own commitment to the family or job or whatever, if those are the basis of your trust, then you, like this man in the parable, I fear, will wake up in hell. That's what it says. And it ends with a disconcerting phrase, many are called, few are chosen. It's like the parable ends, now he's gone from what happened in the past with the Jews to how the gospel goes forth and people receive it from all to this man 
And at the end, he's talking right to many are called, but few are chosen. That's why the Bible says you and I should make our calling and election sure. We are among those to whom the word is spoken. All things are ready. Come to the wedding feast. Don't refuse the invitation. Time hastens on. The king will come, and he will come to see the guest. And have you received and put on the wedding garment, the righteousness of Christ? Have you put on Christ? Have you accepted the invitation to the feast through faith in Christ? It is not too late. The fact that you and I are here today in his word shows that he's still extending that invitation. Isaac Watts took this parable and he put it in a song, which we're going to close with. How sweet and awful is the place. The words are printed in the worship folder. It's hymn number 469. Let's stand and sing this parable as paraphrased by Isaac Watts in this hymn. Stand together. Thank you.